The Bible reading this evening is taken from John 13, starting at verse 31, on page 1082. Going to chapter 14, verse 14. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Thank you, Claire. Brilliant. Well, do keep that passage open, and um, uh, we'll be going through that. And uh, last week, um, we began Jesus' journey to the cross. And um, we witnessed Jesus demonstrating the full extent of his love by washing the disciples' feet. And Stuart, uh, who was speaking last week, helped us just grasp the magnitude of what that action must have been like. What it meant for their master, their king, to get down on his knees and wash their feet. The image of the servant king who out of 
incredible, lavish love for us, chose to become a servant and walked to the cross so that we could be free from sin and the mess that separates us from knowing him. I'm just going to pray for us as we, as we look at our passage tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you long to speak to us through it. And we may have heard this message, uh, this, word, this Bible passage read numerous times. And this may be the first time we've ever um, heard it before. But Lord, help us to hear it um, as you intended it to be heard. Help us to apply what you have to say to us into our lives. In your name, amen. I haven't actually introduced myself. I'm Ollie. I'm the associate vicar here. And um, we're going to be looking at this passage tonight, which begins just after this foot washing and after Judas has gone to betray uh, Jesus. I think we just said after he had left in the passage, Claire wrote, you know, who, who's left? Who's, where's he gone? It's Judas. He's just gone and he's gone off to betray Jesus. And there is a sense that everything has been building up to this moment. The salvation plan that had been put in motion right at the beginning of creation with, in Adam and Eve was now in its final moments. You can imagine the sense of nervous excitement as Jesus, he gathers together the remaining 11 disciples. And there, there he wants to tell them some new things, things he hasn't told them already, things he needs to tell them now while, while Judas is away and before he returns with the guards. Verse 31, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. Now is the moment, this moment that all other moments in history have been building up to. You know, the moment Daniel prophesied in chapter 7, where he says, One like the Son of Man, coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. The moment that God's glory is revealed in its most triumphant, most magnificent way. The sting of death will be defeated on the cross, and the eternal, and eternal life is offered to all humanity. And over these next three chapters, which we're going to be looking at in the next few weeks as we lead to Easter, we see some of the most precious and intimate moments in the New Testament as Jesus prepares his followers of what is about to happen and what this is going to look like for them. And they are words uh, full of comfort, challenge, full of hope full of the personal relationship that Jesus longs to have with every single one of us. And the first thing he wants to tell them is a new command. And he says, to love one another. Now, if you've ever read this book before, you may be thinking, and maybe the disciples were thinking, uh, well, I don't know if this is the first time I've heard Jesus talk about loving one another. Uh, in fact, you know, even in Leviticus, right in the Old Testament, in chapter 19, God commands the Israelites to love their neighbors as themselves. So you can imagine the disciples going, well, you know, it's a good message, Jesus, but we may have heard this one before. But what makes this a new command? It's not because they've never heard it but because they have never seen it demonstrated by the creator of love. 
You know, Jesus tells them to love one another in the same way I have loved you. Jesus is saying, you know, over the last three years, you know, copy me. You've been spending time with me. Copy me. Imitate me. Look back at my life, the things we've done together, the way I lived among you, the way I modeled ministry in front of you, and find, you know, a model of how you're to love each other through them. And we're not to do this just because that's a really nice thing to do. Because, hey, who doesn't think that's a good thing to do? You could walk in the street and say, hey, loving each other, that's a good thing, yay or nay. People say yes. We don't do it just for those reasons. We do it because the world will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Yes, we are to tell people about Jesus. You know, yes, we are to to stand up for truth uh, and justice and just, uh, around the world. But all this is to be demonstrated by how we behave. And most notably about how we behave as a church, as a family. And the ultimate demonstration of what this love looks like is at the cross where we see is in that hymn, by Isaac Watts, love so amazing and so divine, where that, where what Jesus did was so extraordinary. And according to Jesus, this, this, this act of loving one another, this is to be, which is, which is, is, is not like down here love. This is uh, love that is divine, is, is to be our norm. This isn't for special occasions around Easter and Christmas. We're meant to be doing this day in, day out. And you know what? That, that is exactly what does happen uh, in Scripture. I don't know if you've been read through Acts and you see how the, the disciples and the early believers, uh, how they responded to this message of Jesus. And um, here we discover the early followers didn't just speak about Jesus. They also demonstrated who Jesus was by the way they loved one another. You know, and many historians believe that the central to the rise of Christianity was the simple reason that Christians generously loved one another and their neighbors. And they point out that in the ancient world, mercy was widely seen as a character kind of defect that run uh, counter to justice. You know, justice that demands people get what they deserve. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that was seen as appropriate. But where mercy extended grace, love, and kindness to people who had done nothing to deserve it. Yeah, these crazy Christians, they valued mercy. And Christian communities became places where people tended to live longer. Uh, they had healthier lives. When people suffered you know, sickness, poverty, going through real trials in their lives, yeah, brothers and sisters in the church would come alongside them and to, and to, and to help them in their needs. And the Christians extended their, their love, uh, not just within the community, but it went out of those boundaries to, to their pagan neighborhoods. In uh, 251 AD, for example, a great plague struck the Greco-Roman world and fear was everywhere. Those who could afford it, they, they fled to the countryside. Those who couldn't, well, they ended up remaining in the cities. And when they went to the temples, they found all the priests had, had fled. 
The streets were filled with those who had become ill and infected, and their families left with no other solution other than just to push them out onto the streets. Christian communities, though, took an entirely different approach. They saw it as their responsibility to love the sick and the dying. So they took them in their homes. They nursed them. And this meant that many people who would have undoubtedly died didn't. Teratulan, who reported in the late 2nd century that the Romans said this. He said, see how the Christians love one another, how ready they are to die for each other. Their Christian love was this magnet that, that drew many, many people to come to Christ just by the way they responded to each other. And, it, and it's still happening today. You know, today you'd be pushed to go to any towns or cities and not see Christian groups that have started food banks or homeless shelters or soup kitchens or whatever it is all around, all around the country, around the world. But we are also too aware um, that it isn't, that isn't just one, you know, that's the complete story. We're all too aware that the church has often failed to demonstrate this kind of love to those within the church. Um, you know, we have turned often the, the gospel into a weapon of our various cultures and denominations. You know, we've hit people over the head with what we believe. We've burnt people at the stake with it. We've defined the one another so tightly that it's, it's, that it often means that, that to love the people who enforce what you believe and what you, uh, you know, what you, your, your kind of sense of uh, understanding is. I was um, recently invited by a friend of mine who, who runs a church to go to his church. And uh, I went to his church and um, it, w- it was very nice. And um, I, I ended up having a conversation with, with someone. And after about 10 seconds of kind of pleasantry and, com- you know, nice conversation, and, you know, and when they found out that I was actually a Christian and what church I went to, uh, they suddenly became really hostile. And um, they, they, it was almost like the knives came out. They, were, they threw out a question that they knew that I was going to have a different, maybe a different biblical stance on. And they were just hostile, straight out there. And they were asking me, you know, what do you think about this? And I was like, oh. Uh, I was a little bit taken aback. And um, I, I, I smiled. And I made my excuses. And I ran. Um, the, the next day, uh, I spotted this guy uh, in, a, in a coffee shop, and um, I could tell that he spotted me too, even though I was slightly hiding. And uh, my heart, it just, my heart sank. And he, he stood up, and he, he beelined all the way to me. And I was like, oh my goodness, I'm preparing myself for a really awkward conversation. What actually happened was he said, um, Ollie, uh, I'm really sorry for the way I treated you yesterday. I, you know, I'm embarrassed by my behavior. I know that we are, you know, we may come from different church backgrounds. We may have different understandings on different subjects, but we love Jesus and we should love one another. And then we ended up just chatting about his life and lots of things we had in common. And it just really struck me, you know, in this, when I was reading this uh, passage, Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And how do we do that? Or how, how do we, well, Stuart next week is going to be talking about this promise of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we need real God intervention to, to love one another, don't we? Um, 
you know, to love those from different churches and different traditions who may have different views from you, uh, to pray for them is, uh, uh, you know, as they are in, in their kind of, as brothers and sisters of Christ. To help me to maybe to, 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 to love your leaders. Maybe some of our leaders can be particularly difficult in the church. You know, I, I try not to be too difficult. But, you know, sometimes it's difficult to love them. But actually asking God, oh, I need help to love my leaders. Help me to love those in church that, not just the ones I like, but even the ones I find quite annoying. Um, you know, Lord, help me to love those as, uh, as you have loved me. And I think, you know, we have countless people often walking in and coming in, visitors who come in. I had loads of visitors in, in our service this morning. And I was just chatting to some people. And they are, time after time after again, people are impacted by the, the hospitality, by the love, by the welcome that they receive. And that is such a, uh, an, you know, I want to encourage us as a church to just be aware that people are impacted by the way we interact with each other. So Jesus has told them this new command, but clearly the disciples are concerned. He's, he's going away, and they're anxious that, you know, if they'll be able to follow him. And so Peter eagerly says in verse 37, Lord, why can't I follow you now? Or just think maybe how Peter was, was feeling, maybe how the rest of the disciples were feeling. The person they had given up everything to follow you know they left work homes families and to follow him is now saying he's going to leave them how could this possibly be a good thing well i just want to look at two promises that jesus left with them the first is this and it's about his father's house the only other time jesus speaks about his father's house is when he refers to, uh, uh, to the temple in um, chapter 2, verse 16. And the point about the temple within the life of the people of Israel was it was a place where heaven and earth met. Here we see Jesus referring to a new city, a new world, a new, a new house. And Jesus is saying heaven and earth will meet again when God renews the whole world. And at that moment, there will be room for everybody. The promise is made as a way of reassuring the disciples that though he is going away, it would be for their benefit. He won't forget them. He's not going to abandon them. But for, for them, hearing this, this is hard to hear. And as I was reading it again, you know, a simple way to illustrate this was... Um, uh, every night I, I, um, I give my three girls a, a bath, and they're all in the bath at the same time. And um, uh, my youngest one, she's two, and every night we wash them all, and then I tell them, I'm just going to go to your bedroom, and I need to get your bedroom ready, and I'll be back in a, in a little bit to come and get you. You see where this is going. And, and the little one, she, every, most times she just freaks out. I walk out the door, and she starts crying and screaming, Daddy, come back, please, come back. And, I, you know, I end up frantically going around, getting their room ready, and then coming back and just saying, hey, I wasn't going anywhere. I'm, I'm, I'm coming back to get you. You know, her sister, your sister's with you. You're, you're together. Don't worry. I'm not abandoning you. And I think in some small way, the disciples can be a little bit like my, my child, Eliza, at that moment. They have become used to Jesus being around. 
And now they are anxious when they hear that they're going to be left behind. Will Jesus forget about them? And Jesus says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have, not, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may know where I am. Now, this is an incredible promise of hope. It's an incredible promise of hope. Uh, it's, a, it's a promise of a room in heaven that is not limited to a specific holy few, but for everyone who has said yes to following Jesus. I met a young man uh, who became a, uh, a Christian just at the end of the Alpha course today, and I met with him, and he was beaming. And it's just encouraging to know this. The Lord is in heaven right now preparing a room for that man. And this is not a, a one-size-fits-all. It's a picture of God preparing a room that is perfect for you. And you know, I, I don't know if you picked that up as well in the passage. And that is what Jesus is doing right now. So take comfort that he will return and bring you home with him. You know, we can take great confidence knowing that death is not the end. There is life to come. And the next promise that Jesus leaves, and the last one I'm going to be mentioning, is he gives this incredible promise, but also it's an incredibly challenging one. It's a promise that has, over the last couple centuries, become one of the most controversial statements that Jesus uh, ever made. He says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's not I am one of many ways, but he says I am the way. You know, many people have said, you know, how dare he? How dare John or the church put such words in anyone's mouth? Isn't this the height of arrogance to imagine Jesus or anyone else in that matter is the only way? You know, I, I know professing Christians, ones who are close to me, who find this idea so shocking that they want nothing to do with it. They're almost, you know, that is their, their goal, almost to take Jesus off the throne. You know, I would say that people tend to like the second part of this statement. They like the part of coming to the Father. They like the part of going to heaven, having, having life after death. You know, that sounds pretty decent by anyone's standards. They also like the other thing that Jesus mentioned about receiving life, you know, which is exciting and, and is full of purpose. It's just the first part that creates the problem where Jesus describes himself as the way, as the truth. And this is you know, not something that often goes down too easily. It's seen as narrow-minded and arrogant to claim you have you know, the right answer. There's a um, Rabbi Shlumi Botek, who was the Washington, who the Washington Post calls the most famous rabbi in America. And he reflected this attitude towards what Christians believe. And he says this, I'm absolutely against any religion that says that one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that is anything different than spiritual racism. 
It's a way of saying that we are closer to God than you. And that's what leads to hatred. And this is, I imagine, quite a, a common opinion today. We live in a world that demands religious tolerance, where exclusive claims are politically incorrect and offensive uh, to our world beliefs. And we, we live in a world that has endless options, don't we, to live out our lives. You know, we can have, you know, be married or have a partner. We can have a mortgage or we can have a rent. We can have a degree or master's or PhD. We can have football, rugby, golf. You know, and we come to expect the same choice when we, in this kind of spiritual arena as well. You know, Christianity is just another option in the great buffet table of life. Now, many people don't seem to mind you saying that Jesus is the Son of God, but would take offense by saying he is the only Son of God. You know, this idea there being only one way to God is just not popular. You know, many people will ultimately believe that, that most religions are the same. There are many different paths to God. Like a sat-nav, it doesn't matter where you start from, it will always get you to your destination. And there are similarities, of course, across different religious beliefs, such as the teachings and, and the basic morality. However, there are also some drastic differences between Christianity and other faiths that just cannot be swept over. You know, for example, you, you can't say that all religions believe in the same fatherhood because, because they don't. You know, Buddhism doesn't even claim there is a God. Hinduism says that everything is God that you are God, I am God, this, this lectern is, is God. Christian writers, you know, Christian uh, written source of authority is obviously the Bible. We, you know, Mormons written source is the, the Book of Mormon. Muslims have the Quran. But the main difference for Christians is that we believe that Jesus was fully man and God who came to earth, who died on a cross and rose again. Another face um, like Islam deny all three of those claims. And the other difference is pointed out by C.S. Lewis, who said this, unlike any other faith, Christianity is a gospel of grace and not one of works. Every other religion involves us doing something to earn God's favor, gaining enough credit to get into heaven. Some religions require you to use a Tibetan prayer wheel or to go on pilgrimages or to do certain number of good deeds, or even avoid eating certain foods. You see, other religions are essentially do it yourself and earn your way in heaven. Follow these steps and you will have a good chance of receiving salvation. But there is no guarantee. This is mankind reaching out to God. Christianity teaches that it's not down to us to get into heaven, Nothing we do on this earth will improve our chances as we can't pay the price of entry that our sin has created. Instead, through Jesus, we have God reaching out to us, and all we need to do is receive him. Now, this is truly unique, and uh, you know, it, it can be hard to comprehend, but it is the wonderful message of the gospel. And 1 John 4.10 says, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice 
for our sins. That's what love looks like. It's full of grace. Now, I'm aware that many Christians and churches have been arrogant in the way they have presented the gospel. However, this whole setting of this passage, and while we've read you know, quite a big chunk of it, shows us that such an arrogance goes completely against the very truth that it is uh, what, what that Jesus is claiming. The truth and the life that Jesus himself represents. This same Jesus who washed the disciples' feet and told them to, to copy his example. The Jesus who was who was on his way to give um, who was on his way to give his life as a shepherd for his sheep. And this is not a picture of arrogance, but it's a it's a picture of love. And Jesus tells us to love one another and to copy him. When we do, people will believe the earth-shattering truth that he spoke. So that's a real challenge for us. You know, are we loving the way Jesus has asked us to? You know, I'm sure, I'm not trying to pile on guilt here. You know, I'm sure we've, we're, we're all on a journey here. We're all learning. But let's just be aware of how we can learn to love one another because that has such a big impact on the world around us. And then the promises that Jesus leaves with us. Let's just remind, remember these promises. A promise that he will never abandon us, but is preparing a place in heaven for us. And that he will return to take us to be with him. So we don't need to be anxious. We don't need to worry. We can trust in Jesus. And the promise that the only way to find your way there, to, 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 to be with Jesus in heaven is through by coming through Jesus. It's by saying, Lord, you are, you are the only way. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And this, this is the gospel. This is the gospel message, the free gift which is available to every single person. Every single person here. That has, and it's a free gift to every single person out there. And I just want to encourage you, you know, if, have you ever received this gift? And we love to give people opportunities to receive this gift. If you haven't received, I'm just going to give a little moment now just to say, yeah, Jesus, I want to receive this gift. I'm just going to pray for us, and, uh, and then we'll be come, to a, to come to an end. Lord, we thank you that you came to earth, and you came as a servant to demonstrate incredible love. And you did that for us. We thank you, Lord, that we cannot earn our way into relationship with you. It's not about works, but it's about your incredible, lavish grace. And Lord, today, maybe if you haven't done this already, Lord, just to say, Lord, today, I, I receive this free gift. This free gift of life that comes through you. And today, I choose to follow you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And from this point on, Lord, I, I make my decision to walk with you. In your name. Amen. I'm going to invite us all to stand. Um, we're going to worship.
uh, now, and we can stand. <laughs>